0: Welcome to session seven. Today, Gronja and I are really excited to be talking to Dr. Anita Biswas. She currently works at the English Institute of Sports at Bishop Abbey, including a strategic role responsible for optimising athlete health. She has attended three summer and one winter Paralympic Games, the Commonwealth Games in Manchester and the Olympics in both London and Rio, as well as numerous European and World Championships with a variety of sports. She's passionate about keeping athletes playing their sports, keeping active people active, regardless of their age, and helping inactive people become active. She has a holistic approach, treating not only an injury, but also addressing the underlying cause or causes. She works closely with allied professionals, such as physiotherapists and podiatrists, to ensure optimal care for her patients. Anita. Wow, that was an introduction. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Probably have condensed that a little bit. <laughs> okay, I think we need all of those accolades in, for sure. Um, but we obviously have a bit of an idea of you now, as a, yeah. certainly as a clinician. Um, but can you tell us, as the Senior Sports Physician and Consultant in Sports Exercise Medicine and Medical Consultant for Athlete Health, can you define your role within the EIS? And for those of our listeners who don't know, what what is the EIS? Yeah, so um, the
1: EIS, the English Institute of Sport, is uh, a sport, uh, an organisation that provides um, health and sports science uh, support and services to elite athletes, um, predominantly Paralympic and Olympic athletes. Um, and not all Paralympic and Olympic sports, but most of them. Um, we also support sports such as netball, which isn't an Olympic sport. Um, and the, the the sort of services that we offer are uh, medical, physiotherapy services, physiology, um, sports science and medicine, strength and conditioning, nutrition, biomechanics, all those sorts of things. Um, so. You know, we're an organization of over 400 people now and it's grown pretty much year on year since 2000 and probably two, 2003 when we um, came about. Um, so my role, I have a number of roles within the organization. So I do have a clinical role um, and I lead the team of doctors at Bisham Abbey, um, which is in Marlow, um, where we have some of our sports based and then as uh, one of my other main roles as you said is a medical consultant for the athlete health team and that role is is very much around it started off very much around prevention of of or reduction of um, preventable illness so um that's things like coughs and colds we identified that that was actually a significant contributor to loss of time Time training and um, performance had a massive performance impact. So um, one of the things that I I work quite hard with is educating athletes, trying to remind them how they keep themselves well. Um, and then the kind of other part of it, which is where you know what obviously what we're talking about today is um, looking at and particularly um, considering the impact of the hormonal cycle, and female-specific health issues for our athletes. Um, And that's not just necessarily about health issues. Obviously, the menstrual cycle, you can have a normal menstrual cycle that impacts your performance in either a good way or a bad way. Um, So there's all the performance elements of it, but also some athletes have abnormal menstruation and um, symptoms related to their periods, which impact on their performance so um, you know we're doing a lot of work educating athletes that that they can talk about it and actually they should talk about it because we may be able to help that's kind of my roles really.
2: That's really really interesting and that's something that Emma and I noticed was that the EIS was taking a lot of interest and seemed to be kind of innovating for change in female athlete health. Can you tell us a little bit more about the smart her project and its objectives?
1: yeah so I mean the the overall aim it really is to um, provide the best possible support for female athletes within the sports science and medicine world um and when we break it down we we recognize that um One of our biggest challenges was that athletes and and coaches and support staff simply weren't talking about the menstrual cycle in a lot of sports. So a a key element over the last few years has been around education, is um, education of why we should be talking about the menstrual cycle um, and that we shouldn't be scared of it and why we should be encouraging athletes to talk about it. Um, both from the physiology perspective, but also from the health perspective. Um, the, the second element around education is helping people to actually know how to communicate. So one of the significant issues we've had in elite sport um, is one, a lot of research is based on, on male athletes. If you go back historically, men have been competing at the elite level for a lot longer than females. Um, And then when females started, you know, 120 odd years ago, started competing at the Olympics in lawn bowls and tennis or something like that, they um, just translated what they knew about male athletes into female athletes. And things have improved. But if you look at the research, you know, three or four years ago, there was probably only 3% of sports science research was in purely female athletes. And the reason being that the menstrual cycle is a really difficult confounding factor because everybody's cycle is different. So it's really hard to standardize. Um, so the Smarter Project, before, before Smarter, there was a lot of thinking going on about, look, we need to change things. We need to make this a normal conversation. So we really wanted to work hard on um, improving that communication and, um, we had some challenges around young female athletes with with middle-aged male coaches, um, and that kind of mismatch between language and um, understanding and recognition of the importance of the conversation. So we've done some work there, and Smarter came back around as a as a concept about three years ago now, um, and it looks at all these elements. So it's. The education side of it is the is obviously the beginning, um, but then we wanted to break down all the aspects of a female athlete health and performance, um, and that's everything from the menstrual cycle, obviously, which we've talked about, to um, making sure that athletes are wearing the correct bras, to making sure that they're thriving mentally and we're taking into account some of the challenges they may face, to making sure that they're fueling properly um, and... And just uh, making sure that they're fully supported physically. Um, and that probably brings us on to, you know, pelvic floor health as being one of those elements. We're also looking at um, a pregnancy and the post pregnancy phase for athletes because increasingly we're seeing athletes choose to, um, or planning pregnancy into their career whereas it used to be that athletes would retire and have their babies after that. Um, we've had some key athletes that have gone on to have babies and return for a very successful career. And now it's becoming part of planning for some athletes. Um, so we need to obviously make sure we're supporting them properly from the the planning through to the pregnancy, allowing them to maintain their training and then, helping them to return to their full training schedule with all the challenges that uh, come with having children alongside everything else.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, because we met about a year ago, I think it was now, to discuss, certainly from our perspective, the importance of pelvic health. And we were really excited that the EIS was starting to consider female pelvic health much um, much more carefully why do you think now is the time for all of this change to be happening in the elite sporting world? Why Why now? Why not 10 years ago? Because obviously women have all, probably always been struggling with incontinence, certainly periods. Um, I know, as you say, that there are more women returning to their sport after pregnancy. But why, why do you think now we're starting to see a, a, a change around this area?
1: Well, I think the change has been coming, but it's been coming very slowly. Um, it's like with, with any big ship, if you, if you're trying to change a whole way of thinking, it takes years. Um, and, um, certainly myself and the other co-leads in, um, female health, Richard Burden have been trying to turn the ship for some time now. And there's, you know, there's other people I can name people that were doing it even before us. Um, the problem is we probably needed to get to a critical mass of people recognizing that, um, that there were, Uh, things that needed to change. um, And it needed to work its way up the list of importance. First of all, Um, there's been some other key things that have happened probably in the last five years. And that has been around the media interest in women in sport. So that's become a much, you know, probably isn't even five years, but maybe even three years where the media has shown a lot more interest. Um, you know, women's football now is seen on TV. where it wasn't shown on TV not that long ago. Um, there's a lot more focus in some of the press. Some of the newspapers now have specific women's sport areas. So obviously that gathers interest. Um, and if you can gather interest, you can get resources. And if you can get resources, you can actually do something. Um, so. You know, I think the reality is it should have happened 10 years ago and arguably it should have happened 20 or 30 years ago. But I think like with all these things that when we're trying to get change, it's not necessarily helpful to look back. It's really important to keep looking forward. And when you can get some momentum, really keep driving. Um, And that's what we're trying to do is keep driving that momentum I think the other part of it, so women's sport is becoming, obviously, uh, more recognized. Um, but also, it's it's becoming more recognized the importance of women who are not athletes taking part in physical activity. Um, and from the health as- aspect, it's really important. if we And if we look at, you know, pregnancy, for example, I think if you ask a lot of women who used to be active, it's when they go through pregnancy and then they've got a baby and then they've got a toddler and a baby and they just struggle with time and they don't have time to look after themselves and get their bodies back, Um, you know, there's more and more recognition that actually if we can address that, we can have a healthier population. Um, So I think that's really important. It's not obviously the world that I work in predominantly, but I think it's helping to increase interest in in female athlete health and women's health in general.
2: Yeah, like that's a lot of the work Emma and I do with the Active Pregnancy Foundation would align with that. It's trying to champion that change and recognition for the importance of staying active. One of the things, Anita, I wanted to touch on was regarding the... You've really explained that really well about the drive for change and how it's come, and I love that focus on moving forward rather than reflecting back at what hasn't happened. Do you think there's any... Um, understanding or insight into the role of pelvic health as being a limiter for marginal gains with these elite perform- performance athletes because we've some research that says that women maybe hold themselves back or underperform or drop out of sports because of pelvic health issues so for me in trying to clinically reason from my background I would think if we can make sure that someone isn't afraid of leaking it's only going to optimize their performance
1: yeah, I mean, I, th- I think if we look back, at, if we look at our research um, in the area of of probably in pathway athletes and why women drop out of elite sport, there's so many elements to that of which pelvic floor is going to be the case in some athletes. Um, you know, there's a lot of work around around the menstrual cycle and, and the impact in a 14-year-old or a 12-year-old who's going through physical changes um but there's no doubt in in some sports and i think probably um particularly in older athletes we're going to find that that's a reason why athletes drop out um because of leakage i mean in our cohort it one of the biggest challenges is that people just don't talk about it so there's an argument that although there've been some there's been some research and there've been some questionnaires And and the questionnaires that have been completed by athletes has shown that it's actually much more common than any of us really realised. I honestly cannot remember an athlete coming to me and presenting with the problem. But yet, when you ask them specifically, they'll go, oh, oh, yeah, that that does happen. Um, From the elite point of view, I don't think in most cases it's enough to stop them doing it. Um, but they don't, you know, doing their sport that is, but having said that, um, if their pelvic floor is not functioning correctly, it's like if every other, any other muscle in their body is not functioning correctly, they're not going to move optimally. And if you're not moving optimally, that is going to affect your performance, um, I mean, clearly, it's it's part of a whole big system, but it's all these things count. Is you know, has somebody got good menstrual health? Are they wearing the right size and shape bra for their activity and their breast size? Um, it, is their pelvic floor? Are there um, you know transverse abdominis? Sorry, trans abdominis muscles contracting properly and their core contracting properly? Do they have good stability around their pelvis? Do they have good strength in their legs? Do they have good skills? You know, all of these things add up. Are they eating the right food? Um, when you're talking about the elite environment, if we're talking around the general population, they don't. They may not get to that point one or that point zero one, but um, if you, you know, have urine leakage, the minute you try and go back to your sport, that is going to put you off. I think, um, and um, it is going to concern people enough that they say, oh, well, I can't run anymore because the impact's too much. And I do think that, or certainly from my experience in hospital, when you have a baby, you get absolutely no advice. And then even though you know you should do something about it, you're then so busy. Unless somebody is saying, look, this is what's important, we're going to give you time, we're going to give you an appointment to see somebody who knows about this to help you, most women don't do anything about it until it becomes too late or not too late, but it becomes too late for them to get back into their sport
0: in terms of you explaining that your athletes are when you ask them um, disclosing that they are that they are leaking urine for example yeah. how as a institution are you are you now encouraging your athletes to have those conversations so that well how are you opening up the conversation around pelvic health menstruation um and and, because what would be really interesting is if we can learn from how you're potentially doing that and we can then back that down to the grassroots so that Mm. so that women who aren't athletes but want to open up those conversations with healthcare professionals or their running coaches can have those conversations have Mm. you have you put anything into play just yet
1: Well, we're in the process of doing it. So the first thing we started off doing was saying, look, we recognize that it's an issue. We don't actually know how big an issue it is because athletes aren't coming forward. But as part of our education program, there were a number of myths that we wanted to dispel. And one of them was that it's normal to leak urine. Um, And that Although it's common, is not normal. A bit like although it's common for athletes to have no periods, we don't consider it to be normal or acceptable. Um, so that's one of the big things we've done around um, around education um, in just bringing attention to athletes. There are some sports where it's such a common problem and it's a visible problem. For example, in trampolining, where they're in little skimpy costumes and it's really difficult to hide. But um, we've also found that in other sports that maybe would be less obvious, like hockey, um, there's there's an issue there as well. Um, So what we're trying to do is um, educate everybody to look out for it. Um, But as you and I know, it's not just leakage of urine that's that's the problem. So in a lot of our athletes, they don't leak urine. But what they do do is, you know, have... Preemptive wheeze, even though they've just been to the toilet before they play to make sure their bladder is completely empty, and that obviously is a sign that they have some anxiety around their pelvic floor. Um, some of them have pelvic floor pain um, and they might present with a groin strain um, where actually the problem is that there's that either they've got an overactive or they've got a weak pelvic floor um, so we're also trying to work. And to educate our strength coaches and physiotherapists so that they're coaching in a slightly different way. Um, you know, because I if we go back even not very long ago, in aerobics classes and things like that, you'd be told to, you know, hold onto your pelvic floor and Pilates you'd be zipping up. But actually that's all fine. You've got to be able to relax as well. So, you know, we're just trying to turn that again, that ship and that. And that philosophy about pelvic floor into it's not just about urine leakage. So you know if you're getting pu- if you're getting pelvic floor pain um, or recurrent adductor strains or, or things like this, it may be that your pelvic floor is an issue. Um, again, it's like with anything that's a little bit uncomfortable for us to talk about, um, and I don't mean me because I'm a doctor. I talk about anything, but. Um, for patients to talk about we have to introduce the idea and encourage them to talk about about it amongst themselves as well as with us I wouldn't necessarily expect our athletes to be talking to their coaches about their pelvic floor health you know about the symptoms they're getting but at least if they present to the doctors that's really important um, and obviously one of the key elements for us is this doesn't just affect female athletes It affects male athletes and female athletes will be way more aware of it than male athletes. Um, So it's you know we need to educate our staff, we need to educate our athletes, both male and female, and we need to encourage them to to present to us. And that's work in progress at the moment. And you know through this podcast, as much as anything, we're hoping to give our athletes food for thought um, because then they can start to um consider whether not just from the performance point of view but from the health point of view there's something they need to do yeah absolutely and I think it's some there's a couple of important points you raised
2: there Anita that I want to really highlight to some of the listeners and first of all yes pelvic health is not just about um weak pelvic floor and it's not just about leaking from the bladder so that was really important to raise other things like heaviness or pressure in the vaginal area that might be indicative of prolapse is a common complaint for many women and can be quite frustrating. Even things like recurring UTIs, so urinary tract infections, that's something that could be warranted a referral for pelvic health. And constipation or obstructive defecation, which sometimes is that idea of not being able to fully empty, but yet your bowel motions aren't particularly constipated, it's not making sense. And that can be another indication of that overactive or hypertonic pelvic floor. What's interesting is that Emma and I would commonly um, educate that and talk about the fact that it often takes, I suppose if we're talking about the general population, it often takes women seven years on average before they access pelvic health help for these symptoms. So we know it's an area that women struggle to access help with. It's, It's still considered a taboo topic. And I think it's really important that you've highlighted how you're educating the wider team and everybody to be looking out and flagging for symptoms of this because that athlete may get one window in time where they something's bothered them enough to actually indicate or hint at it. And that's why I think even the coaches need to be able to pick up on that, even if the athlete's not discussing it at length. But they may get a window where someone says, oh, look, I just can't. I'm really finding that my bladder's weak or it could be something really non-descriptive that they say. But that's where actions warranted to signpost. Because if that isn't actioned, that athlete may decide never to say something again and may get back into that suffering in silence. And it's it's a really, really difficult one. Um, but all the approaches that you're talking about and that you're taking is what's really going to start to change the landscape. So it's really, really exciting for us. Have you had any feedback from staff and the wider team in terms of how comfortable they feel either being approached about these topics or about raising them or kind of keeping an eye out
1: for them? I think, you know, one of the things that our staff would say is, oh, that's not really my area of expertise. Um, And we recognise that, um, you know, most of our, physios are um musculoskeletal medicine specialists um who haven't actually weirdly been educated in a really key musculoskeletal area. Um you know in terms of our doctors um some of us have done general practice and as part of that we might have done gynecology but also some of us won't have done any gynecology other than two weeks as medical students so it's it's not um that people necessarily are uncomfortable talking about it from the staff perspective certainly not in the medical and physio teams but it's that they don't feel like they've got the knowledge and um what we recognize is that we're never going to be the experts in that area so actually being able to recognize there's an issue and referring to it. Experts is probably more important than trying to become experts in the area. Um, because I think the risk is that if you wait until we're all experts, then you're going to miss a whole load of athletes. Um, so that's not the way we're trying to go. We're very much trying to go around um, helping everyone to be aware of what they might, you know, the athletes might report. And we do do wellness monitoring our, for our athletes. There's a lot of symptoms that they might report through that our wellness monitoring. But you know, things like constipation, as you explained, could be due to a whole load of things. Uh, it might be nothing to do with their pelvic floor. It could be that they're dehydrated, or they're not eating, uh, you know, enough fibre, or um, that they've got other health issues. So um, you know, it's it's us recognizing that this is. A particular problem for an athlete which might affect their performance and then trying to unpick why it's happening of which one of those reasons might be pelvic floor um, issues and you might want to have a look at you know other symptoms of of, are they reporting other symptoms of pelvic floor ill health um, like as you said urinary tract infections Um, but I think you know it's with we're getting to the point where we're just trying to upskill everybody Because if we can upskill everybody, get the athletes also to start recognizing that it's an abnormality and it's something that can be dealt with and can be improved, then we can connect the two, hopefully, (laughs) Um, and increase awareness um, around the network. I think one of my biggest concerns, and I don't know whether this is something to keep into the podcast or not, is when you see adverts that say urine leakage is normal and everybody does it and you kind of go oh no they don't <laughs> um the and actually pardon?
0: the, the oops, oops moments yeah oh. yeah
1: I know because we're then we're normalizing well I mean we, we need to normalize conversation rather than normalizing urine leakage yeah. um because if people think it's normal they won't do anything about it they'll just buy the pad and yeah. carry on as it's almost glamorizing it too like it's
2: making it trendy because oh you can get nice trendy version of incontinent knickers you know yeah. and that element is the wrong message to put out
1: yeah i agree i agree and certainly it's not it's not the um message i would want to go out to any of our athletes that the best way to deal with it is is to you know wear different pants
0: yeah i agree i think it's difficult isn't it because you've got these big um companies like like tenor Um, And it certainly has a role wearing a pad um, because we don't want you to feel embarrassment when you're leaking. We want you to feel protected. But they are and should be seen only as a temporary measure whilst your pelvic health gets addressed. And that's where I think we as pelvic health physios, but also bigger, bigger um, institutions need to work with these companies so that we are promoting the right message mm. and I, I think we're starting to see change within those companies like always antenna they are starting to see the flip side but yeah you're you're spot on if you're turning on the television and seeing someone jumping on a trampoline happily doing so with a, wearing a pad yeah your first thought is, oh, you know what, then I'll just address that another time or, oh, well, that's what she's doing. So I'll just continue, continue in that, in that way. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it's really important. And the same with menstruation as well, you know, with periods, it's great because a lot of the athletes um, are coming out now and talking more about their periods, which for the normal woman is, is really empowering. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really exciting time for change for female health. Um biggest issue I guess you face at the moment is you're obviously heading into your Olympics uh, yes, season because yes. that was delayed because of COVID yeah so how on earth are you fitting this in alongside treating and managing your athletes who are very much in the, in the very heart of their training right now
1: yeah it's a very good question because we're we're actually overlapping cycles for the first time I think first time ever, uh, where we're starting the Paris cycle whilst not having finished the Tokyo cycle. Um, and it it does blow your mind a little bit when you're working it. And I've been working in this environment for a long time because you can't, you know, normally we finish off, have a bit of a breather. The athletes get a breather from us. And then we ramp into, right, this is what we're focusing on for this cycle. Um, I mean, I think with female athlete health, it's, it's more of a, an ongoing thing anyway, so it probably matters less. Um, and what we're trying to do is not overburden the athletes with um, new things, but trying to encourage them to be aware of things that they're experiencing that might affect their performance in Tokyo. Um, some of the newer things we're doing will be more focusing on the athletes that are heading towards Paris um, because, you know, fundamentally if if you haven't changed things now changing them for Tokyo is unlikely to be beneficial there is a there's a tipping point we're probably at that tipping point now um and actually one of the things we you know we're still considering is we're aiming towards the games which hopefully will happen but with the COVID situation as it is we we don't know you know, none of us know what's going to happen in the next few months. We know what we want to happen, um, so yes, it is. It's always a point in the six months before the games of not overburdening, um, and we'll we back off a little bit with our education. We concentrate more on educating the staff so that we're ready to go again when the athletes are, are ready. Um, obviously, what it ends up meaning is that we miss some. You know that some don't get the message. at In time, Um, But I'm hoping that all of them have heard enough of it that if they're having significant problems, that they will be coming forward. Um, But, you know, I'm relying on them coming to us to some extent. We can give them the information, but then they've got to use that information and seek help.
2: One of the things you spoke about, Anita, earlier was the fact that it's not just female health, it's also male health. Within the EIS, are you seeing many males present with um, pelvic health issues or symptoms of male health? Um, not at all, or is that?
1: Um, we see very few. We do see um, some male athletes with urinary symptoms. Um, if, if I'm honest, I, I wonder how often that's linked up to pelvic health in, in the heads of those that are looking after them. Um, I think, you know, we've got quite a way to go in terms of really understanding the pelvic floor health of our male athletes. Um, we definitely see a lot of adductor in- injuries and um, pubic symphysis injuries and things like that. And I um, I hope moving forward that there'll be, you know, we'll be developing more of a an understanding of how pelvic floor health links into that. Um yeah. But we're probably, you know, we're fairly early on our journey with with male pelvic floor health um, compared to female pelvic floor health, and that's partly because we have the Smarter Project, which is aimed at female athletes, and it's really as a, a byproduct of that where we said, well, we can't ignore male pelvic floor health, rather than that there's a specific stream around that. Um, but, you know, the recognition is there and it's it's just a matter of just trying to progress everything. And Actually, I suspect, and I may be being a bit disingenuous, but I suspect it'll be even harder to get male athletes to come forward with pelvic floor issues and to recognize that. Because generally from working with male athletes, they find it harder to even find their pelvic floor
2: yeah absolutely they have, and I think don't they have the same awareness for reason the fact that they, even to, for men to understand that they have a pelvic floor so yeah. you'd be surprised at the amount of men who don't realise that pelvic floor is relevant to the male species as well um, and a lot of male I would do male health as well and you know Men can be predisposed to urinary incontinence, pelvic pain, as you've talked about, even those adductor injuries, and what um, relationship it may have to potentially an overactive pelvic floor or a pelvic floor that's unable to manage the load demand being put in it. You even see not; it can happen occur across any sports but you know stereotypically thinking of male cyclists and things who are always on a saddle they can be ones who present with overactive pelvic floor so it's it's just even really important to raise that and if you're someone out there listening to this and you're aware you're having symptoms there is help available and usually it won't present in isolation as you've mentioned it's important to look at the entire picture because the role of the pelvic floor is in females pelvic organ support in, but also in both um Sexes we're talking about continence control, but sexual function. So usually with males, you'll find that there's some compromise to erectile function, which is can be a real indicator. So yeah, important to important to recognise and raise men's health awareness as well.
1: Yeah, and I think interestingly, you know, in our world, it athletes won't volunteer information about sexual function, um, and it's not necessarily something that we would as connect directly with performance, with sporting performance. And so we we need to be asking about it a bit more. Again, doctors will ask about anything, um, but athletes do often look very shocked when we ask about sexual function because they can't really understand how it's linked. Um, so you know it's it's like with all things to do with menstrual health and female athlete health, it needs to become part of a normal conversation. So that it's just, it is effectively just another load of muscles in the body, in a slightly different place, but it's in a slightly more, you know, personal place that a lot of people don't talk about much.
2: Yeah, it's MSK, as
1: you mentioned before. I think people
2: always forget it's just MSK in an area that was sectioned off into pelvic health, probably because it's a little bit more taboo and and people go down that line. So I think we need to open up that wider picture and recognise that it's still sports medicine, it's still MSK, it's just in relation to that area. But in considering the person as a whole any symptoms there or any dysfunction there or anything that's not strong enough or doing its role enough affects other areas of the body so it's really important to address and it also significantly impacts on quality of life so like we know that the anxiety that exists with people worried about maybe having a leak during training or a sporting event we know how annoying it is to feel heaviness or pressure down there as if something's fallen out like it's just we don't like symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. So we need to remember that there's help and we need to address them. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just really highlight that something I've spoken a lot about recently is the fact that I'm sure you find it in your uh, sports medicine world too, that if someone was being demonstrated an exercise for an area area of the body that they can see, so a shoulder exercise, you might demonstrate it to them, tell them to do it. They're familiar with the shoulder and what it does. You might ask them to repeat it back and go, oh yeah, and they do something different. Like our perception of body awareness and carrying out an instructed task doesn't always hit it on the nail first time. Yet we expect both men and women to understand what the pelvic floor is what it does, how you activate it, and how to know if you're doing it correctly. And yet men and women have no concept of the pelvic floor in their mind's eye. They can't even imagine what the action of it should be. So we're really underserving the population by not delving into it and not making sure that both men and women have ample opportunities to raise concerns or to find out information even if they have no concerns about the pelvic health to find out information about how to maintain it and mm. um, because most women will say they know how to do kegels and they're like oh I've done those they don't work or you know we often hear that with women coming into clinic and when you actually evaluate them they're maybe not recruiting the pelvic floor adequately or correctly or they're under they're under training it you know so many people think that to do kegels you just do a few reflex whereas they're not getting the principles of strength and conditioning with muscle overload. So there's so much to gain from a pelvic health evaluation, um, especially if you have symptoms. Would you agree with that, Nick, then? Would you see that within the sports world, like the importance of maybe yeah. athletes getting a pelvic health assessment?
1: Yeah, so I think um, it, it's like with every muscle, isn't it? You're, you're right that people think they did the kegels when they had their babies and um, and they might have done it for weeks months but with all muscles the muscle becomes weaker if you don't use it um and i think that whole concept of as you age your muscle you lose muscle tone and strength and if you've already got a weak pelvic floor it's just going to get weaker as you get older so therefore like we try and encourage people as they get older to go into the gym even if they or do weight resistance training even if they never did it before um that that you need to carry on doing that with your pelvic floor as well. Um if you're in if you're in your 80s and 90s, that doesn't mean you stop um, because you're just going to get weaker and that problem will get worse. Even if you hadn't had the problem when you had a baby, it will become a problem as you get older. So um I I personally feel like it's something that should be considered by our strength and conditioning coaches as part of their training. And that um, certainly one of the, th- the things that we want to do is make sure that the education goes around not just supporting your pelvic floor but relaxing your pelvic floor at the appropriate times, using your pelvic floor to help your movement in the gym so that it's then trained and um, strong enough to cope with the load that you're putting through it if you're running a marathon or, or whatever you're doing. Um, and that is in strength and endurance, depending on what you're doing. Obviously, if you're a late weightlifter, you're going to need a different element of control to if you're an endurance runner. Um, but I think I think we still have a way to go with that. Um, it's it's definitely work in progress.
0: And hopefully, potentially, she adds cheekily, um, a work in progress where maybe one day you'll see pelvic health physios working alongside your msk physios um so that i mean i think i think physio is at fault of always working within silos you know we don't until recently collaborate enough and i actually i think the world of medicine we work in silos and it would just be great um and i know there's only so much you know you can say in control over this but i i do think it would be amazing to see pelvic health as a specialism coming more into the elite elite sporting world one mm. day when funds allow and times are right but I, I I do think it would be just an incredible thing because I I, I strongly believe that what's seen from above happens below um mm. more and more and that will just mean that more pelvic health physios will um well, more physios will become pelvic health physios um but we'll all work together to treat the person as a, as a whole unit mm. rather than just looking at them uh, that, that, at their individual injury, injury rather than as, as a whole system so hopefully one day that will happen I mm. think you coming onto the podcast and talking about how the EIS recognizes female health and and it's important it's importance, sorry is incredibly exciting um, and it will certainly empower lots of our Um, listeners and hopefully I hope if your athletes are listening it will empower them and give them confidence to discuss it with members of your team because Mm. that's what's so important isn't it that we are having this open conversation busting myths breaking taboos and saying it's okay to have this conversation and there is treatment out there hopefully you agree with that
1: oh well I completely agree with it and that's obviously one of the reasons for doing the podcast is to try and encourage. athletes and athletic women and exercising women of all levels to recognize when when they might have an issue I think one of the questions that comes um either um overtly or or by talking to athletes what you get a sense from them is the fear of what that assessment might be like um, and I I think from our athlete's point of view and perhaps from uh, the woman on the street's point of view, it might be quite useful to hear what sort of a, an assessment they might get as a pelvic, at a pelvic floor physio's appointment. Yeah, you know, it's not as scary
2: as um,
1: people often think.
2: And a common thing that we often hear is like, oh, my goodness, I wish I did this years ago because maybe it was fear that was putting people off. Yeah. I would like to start off with saying that if someone's really off put by the idea of having their pelvic floor examined, that doesn't have to be part of the examination. So don't let that be a barrier because there's still lots that a pelvic health physiotherapist can do in order to evaluate pelvic health and get good advice that may change the course of your rehabilitation. But typically. Like any other area in the body in sporting injury, if, if we're looking to see if there's an issue in an area, usually you should need to examine it. And in women, the pelvic floor muscles are predominantly um, examined via the vagina. And usually that involves inserting one gloved uh, finger into the vaginal cavity. And um, we don't use a speculum like um, happens in gynecology clinics. And so it's just a gloved finger. It should be pain free. It's not supposed to be sore. And it's something that we do all day, every day. So that's what we do. We see pelvic floors. So for, I understand that people do not like undressing and getting their pelvic floor out, so to speak. But it's it's funny because I've been pelvic health specialised for twelve years, and now the thought of someone putting up an ankle injury to me, I'd be like, oh no way. Whereas, whereas I treat pelvic floors because that's my bed and brother. it is just another body part. Um and there should be no taboo around it. And usually we assess pelvic floor in terms of strength and condition. And as I've mentioned before, a lot of women think that they're doing pelvic floor correctly, but actually they find out that they're either not recruiting all of the pelvic floor and only um, maybe recruiting the anterior compartment, for example, and that they're missing a huge layer of the muscles that's really integral for support and for function. And um, So that can be really transformative to what they're doing. And it's also then finding out whether they're, Doing their pelvic floor correctly or adequately enough to achieve the benefits of tissue overload. So, mm-hmm. if you're doing Kegels and not seeing any change, something needs to be looked at in the same way as if you're doing rehab for any other area of the body and we're not progressing, something's not happening correctly there. And um, we also look at it's not just focusing on the pelvic floor. We take a whole systems approach, so it's looking at breathing, it's looking at abdominal wall function, it's looking at generalised strength and conditioning, and how that pelvic floor links in with the likes of groin function, lower limb function, upper limb function. And we really just listen to your complaints, whether, and we do ask, take a history taken that will focus on bladder function, bowel function, pelvic organ support and sexual function. So we cover it all. We do it in a really non-threatening way. It's our bread and butter. And we're used to getting this information out of people in a really non-threatening way. You can have a chaperone present. And so that's always an option. And I think that sometimes can be quite reassuring, and as I say, if you turn up to an appointment initially intending to get your pelvic floor examined and you get there and you're just not feeling comfortable, you do not have to have a pelvic floor examination. And I think knowing that you have that control and, and that it, it's a consent based process is really important that you don't have to. Someone's not going to sign you over to a pelvic health physio and suddenly you're in a clinic that you don't want to be in. It's all about what you're ready for. Would you add anything to that, Emma?
0: I think the only thing I'd add is I have a lot of people that come to me and then on the day they start their period and they think, oh, no, I don't want to have or I can't have my pelvic floor examined. You actually can. Um, It has to be something you're comfortable with. It's certainly not something the pelvic health physiotherapist is bothered about at all. Um, It's just part of our job. Um, There's no judgment made, certainly nothing to be embarrassed about. So if you're comfortable having your assessment when you have your period Go for it um, that 's the only thing i'd add don 't put it off because otherwise you might not come back so there 's always an excuse not to have a pelvic floor assessment and just remember if you 're comparing it to a smear test it 's incredibly different um, Some women do find the smears uncomfortable i 'm yet to find someone um, who hasn 't separately got um, pelvic pain who finds a pelvic uh, floor assessment uncomfortable it 's it's, it's, it's really much less of a big deal than 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 you'll believe it to be so go for it because it can make such a difference and just think of it like any other muscle being looked at really so Yeah, I hope that's. I hope the hard sell's been um, been done well. (laughs) And it's not even that it's just about
2: lying down. So, if we think of our elite performance athletes, we need to meet them where they're at. And we often assess people actually up in upright functional positions, maybe not on the first day. We'll not um, (laughs) throw that at you, but um, often getting people up and functional, or maybe if they only are symptomatic in certain exercises or movements, we'll actually evaluate that. So, we're big into taking people from the offloaded position to getting them loaded and seeing how their pelvic health fits into that and um, so it's it really becomes sports 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 physiotherapy it's just focusing on the pelvic health and um, but yeah it's not scary and even if you ever just want to find out a bit more information don't be afraid if you're listening to this to reach out to even emma and i and Ask questions. See if there's something that's appropriate for you to go to a clinic about, and we'll be able to reassure you or or fill you in if it's not. Um, but does that answer your question, Anita?
1: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's reassuring for for athletes to hear that. Um, and you know, we we said a couple of times it is just another muscle. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's really important for. All women, um, our athletes, no different. To to consider, it's it's another area to keep as healthy as possible, rather than it's a a place not to talk about or a thing not to talk about. Yeah. It's funny because we might see a shift
2: in things as more athletes become mothers, as you've said, because. You know, before any of us have babies, we particularly do not like um, examinations like that or getting up. And it is—it feels more embarrassing. But it's funny because once, generally, once you've had a baby, the taboo (laughs) of that issue kind of goes out the window somewhat. And it's not that you. It 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 just your perspectives and everything just change. So now, when more mothers are coming through this, I think that it might even be a, an opportunity for the conversation within the athlete groups to open much more because mothers are used to talking about these situations and kind of understanding the risk factors of women and um, getting any of these symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. So it's interesting. But we spoke to Stephanie Bruce a couple of shows ago, and it was really interesting in that because she. Uh, discussed with them and I how yeah urinary incontinence and leaking is something that's really common. It's either not spoken about or it's just accepted as normal. And um, that it it she's seen the need for such change within her world, even though she's been doing a lot to raise awareness about it. So there's just there's so much more we need to do. And the more people, the more organisations, the more that everyone's singing up the same hymn sheet and starting to raise us, the better. Because even if you look at things like I often say that before breast cancer and breastfeeding campaigns the word breast was somewhat taboo and people didn't really speak about breast whereas now it's people openly talk about breast they talk about bras they talk about the importance of brass support and we spoke with uh, dr nicola brown in the last session and um, recently and uh, she was talking about the importance of uh, breast health so i'm glad that you mentioned that too and that that's something that's really on the focus of female health because um that can make such a such a difference to athlete engagement and performance
1: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, the key thing for us is normalising all the anatomical parts of an athlete um, and the conversations around those, um, because we consider that health is a big impact on performance and that's the health of every part of an athlete. Yeah. Love
0: that. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, honestly, now we've started I don't really want to stop um, <laughs> no. and I I want to talk to you more about pregnant athletes postnatal athletes but that maybe one day will be another, another one another, yeah. another one um yeah. But I think I can't thank you enough for coming on um, and, and just breaking down those those barriers to talking about this. It's 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 incredibly helpful um, and will, I hope, have a huge impact on the normal woman and the elite athlete as well. So mm. thank you so much. Tell me where can we um, where can our listeners find out a little bit more about you and and the job that you do if if, if they're interested in doing so? Um, so I- the probably the the easiest
1: place to find out about the Smarter project hmm. will be on the English Institute of Sport website. Okay. So that will um, that has got information about all the things that we do at the EIS. But um, you know, particularly there are areas of um, around Smarter, right. and one of the things that we do through Smarter is we send out um, newsletters, which at the moment only go to the elite environment. And one of the things we have talked about with, is having a public-facing version of that, um, that for people who want to take their knowledge to a, a more scientific level. Um, so that's something to watch out for because hopefully that will be up and running on the EIS website in the not-too-distant future. Um, and that just highlights some of the you know the latest research, some of the projects that we're doing, um, and you know maybe some of the athletes that we're working with that have benefited from from some of the work we do. Thank you so very much. Um, thank you. Good
0: luck in the Olympics. Oh, thank you. I'm not going. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm not well, competing. <laughs> well, you're still part of the of of am, the team, yeah, which is just yeah. incredibly fundamental. So thank yes. you so much. And uh, yeah, we hope we hope to catch up soon. Yes, lovely. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.
2: Oh, Emma, was not that just fantastic to see initiatives like that happening? That's exactly what you and I talk about all the time that we want and need to see change with. And I think in the last year, we have seen so much of that change happen.
0: Mm. Yeah, really exciting. And I hope moving forward that they start recognising more and more um, the importance of pelvic health. Um, and it would be, I know they haven't got the data yet, but it would be fascinating to start seeing if by addressing female athletes, Um, pelvic health do we start seeing those marginal gains Um, I think that's I think it's really exciting it's just such a great time to be in this world. Hopefully the data that we've started collecting will really go a long way to getting some of that and
2: hopefully putting something in the literature so that we can that we understand more because as Anita touched on it's a really poorly researched population female health in general and then if we concentrate even further onto the elite's boarding female we know that there's not a lot of data and um, and so I'm excited with all the projects that's happened over I swear, honestly over the last 18 months mm. it's we've always been complaining that there's not enough research and now we're starting to see research projects and research interest and research focus come into action and I know it takes time for that to come out into the literature and then for it to change practice but we're seeing the change and it's even better to be involved in parts of that so I'm super Mm. excited about the next part of the year and wanted to say for anybody listening to this if there was any of the topics that we talked about that really that really interested you or you want to find out more about look through our other sessions because we cover things like breast health we cover other elite performance athletes Mm -hmm. and their journeys and experience with pelvic health and there's just lots of information and nuggets to take from the different sessions so please do look through the sessions and um let us know what you think
0: yeah brilliant so uh i'll see you next month for um session eight i guess And yeah, that will be really good.
2: We're speaking to Heather Sellers and having her experience of um, getting back to exercise after having her baby. So I'm really excited to put that out there. So hopefully that will interest everyone listening to this as well. And definitely definitely let us know what you think and what you like about the content we're covering maybe what you don't like because that's how we ensure that we're getting the right information and the content that you want out there so thanks very much everyone see you soon we'll be you. at your service thanks bye